Galatians 3. This morning we continue our study of Galatians. Paul begins chapter 3 by speaking directly to his Gentile brothers and sisters. And the tone of his words speak volumes. So we're going to dive right in. Chapter 3, verse 1 says this. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The word crucified is written in perfect tense, which means that something has been completed but is still providing benefits or results after the fact. For instance, we dug a well and it's still providing water. We planted a field and it's still providing food. So Paul says Jesus was crucified and His finished work is still doing something. It is still enough for us. And so we could phrase this verse another way. We could say, and this is his meaning, how stupid can you people be? What spell are you under? We gave you a clear explanation of what Jesus accomplished for you and how it still benefits you. Have you lost your mind? That's verse 1. Verse 2. Paul says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So notice that Paul assumes these people have received the Spirit. They are already believers, but they've obviously forgotten how that happened. What was their role in the process? Did they enter the kingdom by doing good works or by responding to the finished work of Jesus? Verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so again, he's questioning their judgment, right? How dense can you be? You started the Christian life by the Spirit. Are you now being perfected by works? Verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So he's asking the question, why does God bless us? Is it because we have earned His blessing by doing something good? Or is it by responding to the finished work of Jesus? Verse 6, just as Abraham, quote, believed God, 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is uh, a New Testament referencing an Old Testament verse, Genesis 15, verse 6. And the New Testament references this verse three times. It's an incredibly important verse because it demonstrates that God always intended to accomplish salvation in this way. By justification, by faith. So what that means is this is a whole Bible doctrine. This is not a Paul doctrine. Faith in God counts as righteousness. In other words, we can escape the condemnation of God by trusting God to provide righteousness on our behalf. That's specifically what Jesus accomplished. And this was an important argument for Paul, and he uses it often, because the Jewish Christians had no counter-argument to this. This was written before Moses was born. There was no Mosaic law. And Abraham had not yet even received the sign of circumcision, which is what they're arguing about. He gets that two chapters later. Verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So not only was faith revealed to Abraham, so was the ultimate plan of God. The promise of faith was not exclusive to Israel. And this is important because the Jews considered themselves to be the sons of Abraham, right? But Paul argues that God always intended to bless all the nations through faith. They also, we also, have the right to be called sons of Abraham, not because we have kept the Mosaic law, but because of faith. Verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. <clears throat> so, the law condemns. Alright, hold on to that thought. Remember that. The law condemns. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Faith justifies, the law condemns. 
Faith justifies, the law condemns. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So what's Paul saying? He's saying there are two ways of living. There's the law way and the faith way. And these two ways of living are mutually exclusive. That's his point. You can try to live by works and bring that to God, or you can live by faith. You can't do both. It does not work. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That is from Deuteronomy 21, verse 13. And so to explain what he's saying, when someone in ancient Israel committed a capital offense, something like murder, and they were convicted, there were witnesses, there was a trial, it was proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had committed this crime. The law states that that person was then to be stoned to death by the whole community. And afterwards, they would hang the body of that person on a tree for a few hours to signify the judgment of God. It was purposefully displayed in order to demonstrate the curse of sin, even though he committed no crime. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. It was purposefully to demonstrate the curse of sin. It was difficult to ignore the consequences. Yeah, I jumped ahead like five, five sentences there. Apologize. But what was it supposed to display? It was supposed to display that sin brings death, right? It was supposed to display the curse of God. It was supposed to signify that this is what happens when we disobey the law of God. Now, consider Jesus, right? Jesus was nailed to a cross, Jesus, uh, Paul was saying. He was publicly displayed as a curse, even though he had committed no crime. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus was beaten, that he was bloodied. That he was nailed to that tree, that he was hung from it. He was gasping for air in pain. He was becoming a curse for us. Why? Verse 14. So that. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith.
The key word in that verse is the word receive. I want you to look at that word closely. So that we might receive. That's the only word that describes our role in the story. It's a passive word. We passively receive something. Empty hands. And that's why it's so important It's important because we must be careful not to think of faith as a work. Faith is not something we do. Faith is not a magic formula that you recite. It's not an incantation that you use to get God to do something. God's not sitting in heaven waiting for you to say the magic words. He's not waiting for you to walk down an aisle. He's not waiting for you to do anything except open a hand and receive Something that's already been done. Faith even is actually a gift of God, according to Scripture. Faith is only a means or a conduit by which we receive Jesus. Our confession of faith describes saving faith as accepting, receiving, and resting. Accepting, receiving, and resting. Those three words are all intentionally passive words, right? Because what we're trying to be careful to say, as Paul says here, by using the word receive, is that God is the one doing all the work necessary. He's doing everything that's necessary to save us, We're just passively receiving that work. And this is so incredibly important, Christian. The law says do. Jesus says what? Done. Faith justifies. The law condemns. I appreciate um, the illustration that Pastor Cyril Chavis uses um, in his new book. Cyril is uh, an RUF campus minister at Howard University and his ministry is primarily to HBCU students and so he's written this book. So far it's a great book um, kind of explaining the Bible with with that group in mind. And if that's interesting to you then I can tell you how to get it. It's It's a great book but he uses this illustration to explain the blessing of justification. Okay. He says, I want you to imagine that you receive an invitation directly from God to attend the greatest feast, the greatest party in history. And as you read the invitation, 
you notice these words. It says, dress to impress or no entry. And knowing what you know about God to be a perfect and holy God, you decide to visit every store in Memphis looking for the perfect outfit. And you find the most expensive, most extravagant outfit in the city. And you get dressed and and everything's perfect and you look in the mirror and you're like, this is it. I am dressed to impress, right? And so you show up at the party feeling good about the way you look. And you arrive at the party and God meets you at the door and He looks you over and He says, you, you didn't finish reading the invitation, did you? And you, you pull it out and you look at the bottom and it says, in bold print, I will provide the attire. And then God pulls out the most amazing clothes you've ever seen, bright white, shining like the sun. And you know what? That's exactly the picture that God gives us in Revelation 19. The end of time, there will be a great wedding feast. And it says that it has been granted believers to wear fine linen, bright and pure. It has been granted to us to wear these robes. What's he saying? He's saying our righteousness is a gift from God. It is received by faith in Jesus. Now listen, if you really want to understand this, you're going to have to personalize it. And so what I want you to do is I want you to consider your life, your own story, and I want you to think about the things that you have pursued in your life. Education, career, strength, beauty, athletics, relationships, hobbies, I want you to think about the things that you have spent your life investing in, your time, your money. What were you pursuing? Because there is a universal human experience in all of those things, and it's this. We never feel like we've done enough. It doesn't matter how much time, how much energy, and how much money you've spent on any of those things that you pursued in your life. You'll never really feel like you've done enough. For instance, professional bodybuilders, right? They receive, uh, they, they reach the highest level of physical performance possible for human beings. I mean, I look at these guys on on Facebook or whatever, these videos pop up of these guys, you know, with the the muscles. And I look at that and I marvel at the self-discipline. That's what I'm thinking. Like, I don't have anywhere near the self-discipline to achieve something like that. 
and I marvel at it. But here's the irony. They look in the mirror and they don't marvel at it. They see some muscle group that they need to work on tomorrow. They see something missing that's going to lose them the next competition. They see something they haven't done well enough. Because that's how this works. And that's exactly how it feels living under the law. My friend Ricky describes it as a feeling that God is like a policeman in the rearview mirror waiting for a reason to turn his lights on. He's just waiting on you to slip up. And he says he felt like that even when he was trying so hard to be good. Listen to how this, this friend of mine described his college years, okay? He said, in college I awoke at six every morning and attended five Bible studies a week, plus prayer meetings. And all it ever did was cover me with even more guilt because I wasn't everything I thought I should be. He said, one summer I I worked at Christian camp, and I felt guilty about it because I thought I was wasting my summer trying to help rich kids. So the next summer, he says, I signed up to help poor kids, which was a disaster. I desperately wanted those kids to love me, to see my sacrifice for them and appreciate me. He says, I didn't know it at the time, but I was just using them to fill a void in myself. He says, once when I saw how little they respected me, I got so angry that I threw a basketball at one of the kids. And he said, the true nature of my service was revealed in that moment. I was only there for myself. And you know what? I can relate to every word of that. And I bet you can too. And listen, it may not be religious works for you, okay? It may not have been the the Mosaic law that you were trying to keep, but it's been something. There is some effort in your life that just never felt like enough. You'll never earn enough money. You'll never be talented enough or smart enough or pretty enough, or good enough, or healthy enough. And listen, I'm not talking, I'm not even talking about what God thinks about you. I'm not talking about what other people think about you. I'm talking about how you see yourself. That's also the curse of the law. It's not only that you're guilty in the courtroom of God. You are. We all are, right? But you're guilty in the courtroom of your own soul. It's never enough for you. 
And we do this not only to ourselves, we do it to our kids without even trying. It's second nature for us. We push them to perform. And it may not be the law that you grew up with. You may have decided, I'm going to get as far away from that as I can, right? I'm not going to be anything like my parents. But you know what you replace it with? Some other law. Some other right way to raise your kids, right? And it's not what they did to you, but it's what you're doing to your kids. And they're going to need just as much help as you did. We all do it, and it's a curse. And we keep passing it on generation after generation, and it changes with culture but it's the same basic thing. The very thing we don't want to do, we inevitably end up doing. And all you have to do is look at human history. So what did God do? If you're a parent, then you know how difficult it is to watch your own child suffer. And yet, that also is a universal experience. We've all been there. I will never forget sitting with my son for hours after he severely burned his hand in a fire. He was in immense pain. And I remember thinking how much I wanted to take that pain on myself. How badly I wanted to trade places with him so that he wouldn't have to suffer. And if, if in some cosmic way, if I had been given that option, I would have done it instantly. No hesitation. God, give me that pain. Right? This is what makes the gospel so incredible to me, so remarkable. The gospel tells us that God the Son took the curse in my place. He traded places with me. And yet, Jesus did hesitate. Only for a moment. And probably only for our benefit, so that as His disciples we might better understand what it is that He chose to do. But hours before the cross, the Gospels tell us that Jesus was in deep emotional distress as He prayed to the Father. And He said these words, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Then He says, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. I believe that the emotional distress of Jesus in that moment had very little to do, if at all, with the torture of the cross or even death. Because like a parent loves a child, the Scriptures tell us that Jesus was ready and willing to suffer and die in our place for the joy set before Him, right? No, I think that Jesus' emotional distress is what He says 
in the verse, he calls it the cup. What cup? If you do a word study, what you'll find, he's talking about the cup of God's anger for sin. He's talking about drinking judgment onto himself. He's talking about the curse. So try to put this in perspective. Any decent parent would be willing to trade places with their own suffering child, right? But raise your hand if you would let your only child suffer unjustly in the place of people who deserve to suffer. Anybody? None of us would do that. In fact, we would consider that to be some weird form of child abuse, right? And here's the thing. The only way that this works, the only way it works in the gospel is because the Father and the Son are one God. The lender himself is the one paying the debt. That's the only way this actually works without being weird. And yet, it is nonetheless shocking to us. Consider exactly what this means. Why would Jesus willingly place Himself under a curse for us? The only answer to that question is unconditional love expressing itself through sacrifice. And it must be. It has to be. It can't be anything else but a gift that could never be earned. And in fact, to try and earn it is to mock the sacrifice by making it look conditional. And that's what Paul is trying to say. That's the good news at the heart of Paul's argument. All we do to be justified is passively receive the work of Jesus, if you try to do anything else with it, you make a mockery of it. But what's the opposite of passively receiving something? It's actively rejecting it. And that is... According to the Bible, that is the default condition of every human being until God changes our posture by grace. You are either passively receiving Jesus or you are actively rejecting Him. There is no middle ground. There can't be. Because faith justifies where the law condemns. Faith justifies, but the law condemns. And so will you today passively accept, receive, and rest in what God says has already been done for you? It is already finished in Jesus Christ, His only Son. Let's pray.
Gracious Lord Jesus, um, I believe completely that it is not my words that changes anyone's heart. Um, it's not the, the power of a moving sermon. It is simply the gospel proclaimed, as Paul said, it is the public proclamation that we have portrayed Jesus as crucified. That that work is accomplished, it's finished, and all we do is receive it by faith. Lord, that gospel and your spirit, which is what we receive by faith, that's what changes our lives. And so we ask for you to do that work. We ask you to turn any who are actively rejecting you to turn them towards Christ to be people who are passively receiving Him. Put up whatever walls you need to put up. Do whatever you need to do, Lord. We know that You're the only one that can do it. So we ask for Your help. Help our unbelief, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.